This is The Road That Killed a City, Episode 3, The American Identity. After the Industrial Revolution and the turn of the century, the nation was beginning to acclimate to some of the technological advances that came out of it. And it was at this exact time that some of the world's most influential and greatest minds began to envision a new type of city. That's Denise Costanzo. She is an architectural historian and professor at Penn State University. Two of the most prominent architects on her syllabus are Frank Lloyd Wright and Le Corbusier, who made their name in the modernist era of the early 20th century, designing buildings that were as stunning as they were simplistic and practical. It was a direct objection to the overly ornate design of the Victorian era that came before. To understand where their heads were at, look up Le Corbusier's Villa Savoy. These houses brought fame and recognition, but both architects wanted to look further, and the pair set off designing their own model cities. These two architects, Lloyd Wright in particular, hated the crowded, old-fashioned, and unorganized cities of Europe and the Northeast United States. And these two legendary creative visionaries dreamed of wiping out the cities of old and rebuilding them with their own almost utopian outlook. Beyond that, they emphasized maximum green space, spread out streets with parks and evenly spaced modern apartment blocks, fitting on an organized grid, and of course, enough space for planes, trains, and automobiles to thrive. It was the exact opposite of London, Rome, or downtown Manhattan. While Corbusier and Wright's planned cities themselves didn't have a ton of impact, the ethos behind them would prove to be incredibly influential especially in the New World, in the United States in particular, where the framework for the modernist vision had already been well established. The United States, from the earliest settlement by European colonialists, never identified itself through its cities, unlike much of the rest of the world. And this anti-urban sentiment can be traced back to some of the nation's earliest legislation.
The advent of the railroad, and then later the motor vehicle, made it easy to go from work in the city to home in the country. The United States legislators and city planners became very receptive of the low-density, car-friendly urban design of Frank Lloyd Wright and other modernists. The United States embraced this idea of a reimagined urban world. And with Hartford's demographics changing dramatically, the modernist architect's radical, if innocent, vision provided the framework to create a new, more divided city. As I mentioned earlier, before the Great Migration, when Jim Crow laws forced millions of black Americans to leave the southern segregationist states, Hartford had a black population of only around 2%. In the 20s and 30s, however, this changed. What was once a city of white Anglo-Saxons was attracting more black migrants, as well as European immigrants, particularly from Italy and Poland. The plans to reimagine and rearrange cities took this into account. In the wake of the Great Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt put into place the New Deal, which, among many things, made it easier to get a loan on a house making it possible for millions of Americans to own homes who previously would not have been able to do so. This was a major factor in America helping grow its middle class. There were, however, some stipulations. The federal government sent agents to talk to people who were bankers and lenders in places like Hartford to try to convince them, hey, start lending mortgage money to different people in different neighborhoods. And they did this by color-coding neighborhoods, based on how favorably they would give loans for property in that area. Green areas got the best loans, and red got the worst. Redlining maps show that the federal government did designate areas often where African Americans lived, such as the banks of the Connecticut River, the Front Street uh, neighborhood, uh, as redline areas. They'd be colored red on a map to designate that the federal government said, we think this is the worst place to lend money. This is a process now known as redlining, and the U.S. government considered high immigrant and racial minority population as one of the factors giving neighborhoods a red or yellow classification. There is also another trend found on these residential security maps. Many suburbs, not all, but many suburban neighborhoods got a green rating, the highest possible rating. And much like in the prioritization of car transport in city planning, this was not done organically or with citizens' approval. So the reason this draws attention today is because this isn't just individuals who are making decisions about where to invest their money. This is our government using our tax dollars to encourage business to lend to some neighborhoods and not to others. And much of the redlining was being led by one man, Foster Milliken Jr., who Doherty quotes in his book On the Line as saying, the entire trend is to the West. And coincidentally, pretty much all of the green and most of the second grade blue neighborhoods are in West Hartford, which at the time was only a small farming town with a population of less than 5,000. Another issue came with the zoning of property, which rapidly increased at the turn of the century. Now, there's a lot of progressive thinking about some zoning, such as you don't want to build a factory with toxic waste 
next to a daycare center. You want to separate uses. But in many situations, zoning was used for different purposes. But at the same time, we can look at the documents about what was going on in the 1920s and see that uh, resident, you know, city planners in West Hartford or town planners in West Hartford were early on adopting the language of zoning with a clear intent to segregate West Hartford by income. People like Foster Milliken made sure that home buyers in West Hartford got the most favorable loans. And zoning laws made it clear what kind of houses would be available there. They specifically wrote into their early zoning rules in the 1920s, saying that certain properties in certain neighborhoods, if they're going to be built there, they'd have to have wide frontage. And I didn't know what that meant until I started realizing, oh, that means they have to have a larger property plot or parcel to sit on. And when you start doing the math on this, you start realizing, oh, even the, the zoning code makes it very clear in the 1920s. The purpose of zoning is to make it economically impractical for lower income people to live in certain neighborhoods. Redlining and exclusionary zoning in Connecticut effectively meant the government made it easier to buy houses in the suburbs, while subsequently divesting in the inner city. And this caused a migration outside the city of Hartford. But while some people had no problems buying houses in the suburbs, others did. You've got real estate agents who are just, according to their PACs, refusing to take African-American buyers into predominantly white neighborhoods. And while the practice of redlining died out by the 1970s, this lasted way longer. These racist practices by real estate agents are clearly documented in the Hartford area up into the 1970s, and arguably you could see reports saying they still exist in the 80s and 90s. So when black Hartfordites tried buying a house in a green zone town like West Hartford, they'd be steered away to one town in particular. Real estate agents have been accused and pretty much definitively shown that they had carved up the suburbs and made some suburbs like Bloomfield places where it was considered acceptable for real estate agents to bring African-American buyers. Middle-class African-Americans who could buy a home, they would be shown properties in Bloomfield, but not at the other suburbs. Practices like these still have a dramatic effect on the demographics of Hartford and its suburbs to this day. By the end of World War II, the slow segregation and de-urbanization of Hartford was starting to take place, with an emphasis on the slow. By the 1950s, a couple of decades after the redlining practices went into effect, Hartford was still a growing and thriving integrated city. But all that was needed was something drastic to incentivize and permeate the separation. 